0: I'm Sarah Lipman. Welcome to Torati Mecha Nachyomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today we will be learning Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles, Volume 1, Chapter 20. Verse 1: And it was at the turn of the year, tseis at the season when the kings go out, that Yoav led the army and destroyed the land of Ammon. He besieged Rabbah, the capital, while David stayed in Jerusalem. And Yoav smote Rabbah and destroyed it. So chapter 20 takes place a year after the events of chapter 19. Rav Moshe Eisman in the Arts Girl Diver Hayamim points out a very striking difference, one of several, between what is told here in Diver Hayamim and the parallel narrative in the Book of Shmuel. Here, Yoav the general is given full credit for winning the battle with the Amonim and conquering their capital, whereas in the Book of Shmuel, David is given the credit. So in the 11th chapter of Shmuel, it says that David sent Yoav and the army to do battle, and that when victory seemed certain, Yoav loyally advised David to come lead the final attack so that he would retain credit for the win. Whereas here in Divrahayamim, HaYamim, Yoav is said to lead the army out, and it is Yoav who is credited with conquering the capital city of Rabbah. Revisman cites the Rambam, Maimonides, and Hilchos Malachim regarding the role of the monarchy in a Torah society, which is that it is the duty of the king to execute justice and to wage wars. It's not enough that the king delegate those jobs and make sure that they get done. He needs to lead in justice and lead in battle himself. Revisman suggests that David may have stayed out of this battle because he felt himself to blame in part for these wars with Amon, Maybe, if he had never extended any kindness to King Hanun in the first place, all this fighting might never have happened. But was avoiding the battlefront the right choice? Possibly not. Tivrei HaYamim, telling us not just what happened, but what it means, may be rubbing the point in by giving all the credit to Yoav here. Verse 2. David es ateres me al-rosho. And David took ateres Malcolm, the crown of their king, from upon his head, Vayimsa'a Mishkal Kikar Kesef, and he found that its weight was a kikar, a talent of gold, Uva and in it was a precious jewel, Vatihial Rosh David, and it was upon the head of David. Ushalal Od, and he brought out of the city a great quantity of booty. Essa Malcom, the crown of Malcom. Malcom can literally mean their king, Hamelah But more typically a verse would just say, Ateres HaMelech, the crown of the king, or Ateres Melech Ammon, the crown of the king of Ammon. And so, our sages, in Masachas HaVodah understand Malcom to be referring to the Ammonite worship of Molech, also known as Milkom, in which case, Malcom in our verse may be the proper name of an improper idol. David found that the weight was a kikar, a talent of gold. How much is a kikar? According to the OU's website, in an article entitled "How much would the Mishkan cost today?", a kikar weighs 3,000 shekel, and each shekel is a fifth of an ounce. So, 1,500 ounces of gold, which would be about 93 and three quarters pounds, at a modern rate, that's nearly two million dollars worth of gold. Obviously, such a crown wasn't meant to be actually worn. Over 93 pounds. The Gemara goes on to explain about this royal crown made of a kikar of gold. The Gemara says that the crown had a magnet, which was used to hold the crown over the king's head without the king needing to bear the crown's actual weight. Alternatively, it may be that when the verse says that, quote, he found it to weigh a kikar of gold, and it had uva evinyakara, a valuable jewel in it, it was the jewel which was valued to be worth a kikar of gold, not to weigh that much, but be worth it. Our verse continues, Vatihi al Rosh David, and it was on David's head. Ravihuda Yehuda, ama Rav," says Rav Yehuda in the name of Rav, Reuya la al Rosh David. It was suited to sit well on David's head. The crown fit him. And furthermore, this crown is said to testify, it served as testimony as to who is fit to be the king. According to Rashi on the Gemara in Sanhedrin 21b, this crown from Amon didn't fit just anyone. It had a bar of gold across the inside, which prevented most people from being able to get it to sit on their heads correctly. Apparently, one's head needed to be shaped just right to wear it, and this phrenological litmus test was used at least twice in later years to prove the rights of the sons of the house of David to rule. To quote Rav Moshe Eisman in the article Deva Hayamim, It seems strange that legitimacy for the Davidic throne should be determined by whether a crown captured from Ammon would fit or not. End quote. I quote Revisman because I myself could not have said it so tactfully. Strange? This isn't a glass slipper for a fairy tale princess. What is being communicated to us here? Revisman calls our attention to the significance of reading about the crown here in Divri Hayamim at all. The story was told already in the Book of Shmuel as the history. Divri Hayamim only tells about David's wars through the filter of how they moved history towards destiny, towards Kate's Hayamim, the end of days. So when we read the second half of the verse that David brought out of the city a great quantity of spoils, that's not actually strange because those spoils were contributed to the treasury for building the Beis HaMikdash, the holy temple, which is a the theme of Divrei HaYamim. But the crown was not deposited into that fund and still Ezra writes about it here in Divrei HaYamim. So there's something more going on here. Why did the crown of Ammon fit David? It's because he too was a descendant of Lot, via Moab. He's a cousin. We spoke previously about the 800 or so year unfolding of the struggles of Haran, Avraham's brother. How Haran's son Lot grappled with the inner tension between his devotion to God and his search for physical and financial comfort. How that led directly to Lot fathering children by his daughters, who grew up to be Amon and Moab, founders of nations just across the Jordan River. And how Moab's descendant, Princess Rus, Ruth, threw herself wholeheartedly into God's arms, becoming Imah Shalmalchus, Malchus, the grandmother of David HaMelech and the royal line. We learned that, but it may not have fully registered the significance of the fact that David is descended from the house of the children of Lot, son of Haran. Our verse here says about the crown of Ammon, Vayim Saa, and he found it. David found the crown to weigh a kikar of gold. In Tehillim chapter 89, we read, Matsasi David Avdi, I have found David, my servant, says God. The Medrash asks, David was found? Where was he found? The answer, in Sodom. The only two of Lot's daughters to escape Sodom are described in Parshas Svayera as Shtaven Osecha Hanim "You your two daughters who are to be found here. The Davidic Kingdom vested in part in Lot and his descendants, was hidden deeply under a layer of negativity with which Lot is portrayed in the Torah. The essence of nobility within Lot had to be dug out. It had to be found, and it was found in David. Perhaps then we may be so bold as to reread verse two, having this in mind, and David took the royal crown of that family of Lot from his head, and he found that the family's value was not in its inauspicious beginnings in Kikar Yarden, the Jordan River plain. But rather, he found that its value was a golden Kikar of gold, holding within it a precious jewel. That was David himself. But al-Rosh David and this golden royalty sat firmly on David's head. Verse 3. And David brought out the people who were in the city, Vayasar, and he cut them with saws and knives. And so did David do to all the cities of Ammon. And David and all his people returned to Jerusalem. Some commentaries read this word, Vayasar, as David extracted forced labor from the Ammonim with saws and knives. In other words, they had to work chopping and hewing. However, Ra'al reads Vayasar as hacking or sawing, that David hacked at the Ammonim cruelly. How can we possibly wrap our heads around the possibility that a Jewish king no, not a Jewish king, the epitome of what a Jewish king should be, hacked off the limbs of the vanquished, whether as a death blow or even after death. In fact, when David conquered the Edomites, we learned that he made sure that all the enemy dead were buried respectably, thus spreading Israel's name and fame as righteous, benign conquerors. The recognition of innate human dignity is the hallmark of the wars of the Jewish people. So what is going on here? I have turned to the approach of Rav Moshe Eisman's commentary in the Arts Girls for Direction. Let's start by recalling the backstory. David had hoped that he was done fighting and had reached peace with his neighbors. God informed him that there were more wars to fight. David extended sympathy and kindness to King Hanun of Ammon. Hanun responded by inflicting humiliation and derision upon David's ambassadors. And then... Hanun went and hired tens of thousands of mercenaries and set out to wage war against David and the Jewish people. If David's messengers of goodwill could be stripped naked, half-shaved, and sent on their way, then David's idea that he has attained a peace born of respect, a peace ready for the building of the base of that idea is shattered. Kindness and peaceableness can come from a place of great strength or from weakness. Amun has projected that David's kindness is an expression of weakness "'brutalizing David's representatives. "'We may gain insight into the language of subjugation "'employed by the heathen kings of the era "'from Adoni Bezek, king of Bezek, "'who boasted in the book of Shoftim, chapter one, "'that he cut off the thumbs and toes "'of the kings he vanquished "'and made them scrabble for crumbs under his table. "'The Ammonim themselves were a violent nation "'whose idol Molech was served "'by the burning alive of infants, child sacrifice.' We recall this whole battle began when David extended honest and peaceful gestures. Those gestures were an appreciation for the help that Hanun's father, Nachash, had once given to David's brother. But of course, Nachash HaAmoni was the king in Shmuel Aleph chapter 11, who attacked the Jewish state of Yavesh Gilad. When they tried to surrender, Nachash replied that he would accept their offer to become subject to him and serve him, only on condition that each person have their right eye gouged out so that they would be a herpa, an embarrassment to the Jewish people. Those are his words, not mine. David is not surrounded by kind neighbors. And with Amon's slap, he realizes that, just as God has said, there was more fighting to be done. If Israel is to reach a state of peaceful control and universal beneficence— he would have to show unambiguously that he speaks from a position of total strength, of absolute power. He needs to send a message not in his native dialect of shalom and chesed, peace and kindness. He needs to send a message in Ammonite language. Ammon will have no doubt that David can impose his power and control absolutely and as violently as Ammon themselves would. When David is not violent, when he does kindness, shows mercy, speaks of peace, it is not because of weakness, it comes from strength. The Midrash Tanchuma in Parshas Lech teaches, God said to Hanun, son of Nahash, Rasha, evil man, you started with the sword, your sword shall pierce your heart. And Yoav and Avshai came and killed him. Verses 4-8 through eight relate three battles with the Plishtim. In the course of each of these battles, a great Plishti warrior was defeated. After this, a war arose at Gezer with the Plishtim. Then it was that Sibchai of Hushat smote Sipai, a descendant of the Rephaim, and they were subdued. And there was another war with the Plishtim, and Elchanan, son of Yair, killed Lachmi, the brother of Goliath of Gas, and the shaft of his spear was huge like a weaver's beam. And there was another war at Gas, and there was a man of extraordinary size, with six digits on each of his hands and feet, 24 fingers and toes in all, he too was born to the Rapha, And he mocked Yisrael, and Yehonasan, son of Shima, brother of David, smote him. These giants were born to the Rapha in Gas, and they fell by the hand of David and his servants. I've got a lot of questions, but for now, let's notice that in describing the downfall of this mighty group of related giant warriors, verse 5 names the brother of Goliath, the more famous Goliath. Radak and Malbim read the verse like this. David of Beis Lechem killed Goliath, the Giti. And Elchanan, also from Beis Lechem, killed Goliath's brother, who goes unnamed here. Actually, the Vilna Gaon reads it as Elchanan ben Ya'ir es Lachmi, from Beis Achi Golias Goliath giti his brother, meaning Sipai's brother, Sipai was in the last verse, was Goliath of Gas. Our sages in the Midrash Rus Rabbah understand that Elchanan ben Ya'ir of Beis Lechem is David HaMelech himself, Elchanan is David, Shechanano Hakadosh Baruchu. Elchanan is David because God showed him favor. Elchanan meaning God has favored him. The local targum, basing its translation on the targum of Shmuel, says that Elchanan David here is called Ben Yair, the son who wakes up, because he did not sleep through the night but would wake up in the middle of the night to learn Torah and to sing praise to God. Most significantly, says Revisman. Divri HaYamin brings together all three of these battles with the giants because they tell a cohesive story. They tell of the ultimate victory of David, son of Rus, over the children of Orpah. Rus and Orpah were both Moabite princesses. They had married the sons of Elimelech and Naomi, and thus were sisters-in-law. When their husbands died, these women chose opposite paths in life. Rus threw herself entirely into God's care and clung to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and to Judaism entirely, no matter what. Orpah began with Naomi and then returned to Moab and Moab's culture of violence and immorality. In the head to head showdown of Rosa's grandson David and Orpah's grandsons, the giants, David wins. In David's words, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear. And thus, in a single chapter, David's strength and determination, strength lent from God, and determination to do God's will, conquer the children of Amon and Moab's children of Orpah, actualizing and redeeming the royal jewel nestled in the hearts of Haran, Lot, and Lot's daughters. Thank you for learning together with me. Le'ilui Nishmas, Rose Foreman, Razel Rachel Bas Aryaleb and Rachel Zeitlin.